Good morning, everyone. My name's Tim. It's good to be with you this morning. It's chilly, ain't it? It's a little chilly outside. If you got a Bible with you today, open up to the book of Joel. Book of Joel, chapter 3. We're going to finish out Joel today. If you got it, say you got it. Follow suit. Joel chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. I think I heard most of the people say they got it. So far, so good. Okay. See, see you, Larry Funky. I don't know if you've ever had this terrible experience before. I certainly hope not. Maybe you were expected to go to kind of a, a formal event. Um, maybe a funeral, maybe a wedding. Um, maybe you were 13 years old and you were going to a middle school dance and you were about to pick up your date. And as you were stepping out of the car, um, the worst possible thing on the planet happens to you. What would that be? Your pants split. That's not fun. I'm about to knock on the, on the door of my date. She's not my girlfriend. I liked her a lot. I wanted her to be my girlfriend. She ended up not being my girlfriend. Um, I, I'm, I'm willing to wager it's because um, I ended up not knocking on her door because my pants were split. And I go home. I don't even make it all the way out of the car as I'm like, as I'm stepping out, you hear the, the rip. And in my shame, mother, take me home, please. I threw those pants away, never to see my shame again. Kind of live in a throwaway culture, though. Um, If those pants were made, I don't know, 50 years ago, they wouldn't. They wouldn't have split. You know, you you can build bridges with those kinds of things, you know. It's, it's a bit, uh, quality isn't what it used to be. Um, we, we, we also care a lot about convenience nowadays. I, I live in a house with three, three kids, very busy home. We don't bring out the fine china for guests. We don't do that. Um, you're going to get some chinette instead. All right. We'll, we'll invest in that way. Um, It's a matter of convenience, but we're throwing out trash a couple of days a week, you know? We we live in a throwaway culture. Even the relationships that we have with some people, um, if they mistreat us, uh, they can be in our life one moment and gone the next. It's so easy. It's, it's it's, it's four button clicks actually in your, in your phone. You, You can test it right now. Um, there might be someone that you don't want to talk to today. You can block them now. You go in your iPhone, you, you select a couple of different buttons, and you can select, I don't want to ever receive a phone call from them again. We live in a, in a pretty throwaway culture, um, even to the point where not just relationships, but even people themselves um, just don't matter anymore. And we see this certainly with the, with the aged and, and dying as we place them in nursing homes, someone else will take care of them. 
Uh, This is not a polemic against putting people in convalescent homes. It is a polemic, however, against um, putting people in convalescent homes and never caring about them again. Or today is the Sanctity of Life Sunday, where evangelicals, conservative evangelicals, care about um, people in all stages of life, from conception to to death, um, even even babies before they're born, some people would suggest, argue, that babies just don't matter um, unless we can conceive of a world where, like, they can live out their full potential. We live in a throwaway culture. There are a lot of different ways and a lot of different cultures in which um, they try to deal with the problem of, of brokenness in the world. I want to show you um, a really interesting way that some other cultures, though, deal with the problem of brokenness. Um, this is a Japanese art form where when a piece of pottery would break, um, they, they do something fantastic. They don't sweep it up into their their dustpan and then throw it away. Instead, you you might be able to see the the veins, the yellow veins throughout the the, the blue pottery. Can you see that? What they end up doing is they take gold lacquer and they start piecing the pieces together, the broken pottery. They end up keeping the broken pottery, and it's, it's useful still. But why the gold? Supposedly, it's, it's to accentuate the brokenness. Like there's somehow some kind of beauty that comes from things being broken and being put back together, which is kind of the Christian story, isn't it? That's a story of the, of the Bible. Things have broke seemingly to the point of no return, and then God comes promising new life. Redemption. Redemption from ruin. And that's the story of Joel. We have done a great disservice, how, though, in in how we understand salvation, where it is really just a matter of once I die... Um, I'm disassociated from, from my body. My soul goes on to heaven and that's where it is for an eternity. The story of the Bible though is not, it does not just tell of that. It, it would say that heaven is real, absent in the body is to be present in the Lord. That's true. Heaven is a pit stop for Christians, however. The salvation and redemption that God promises is cosmic. It goes across all of creation. God promises to make all things new. And as people that are a part of creation, those that trust in Jesus also get to be a part of that. And so the main idea of this passage as we end the book of Joel is simply put, God redeems his people. God redeems his people. That there's a day coming ultimately and finally when the hope that you and I have longed for will finally be realized at the return of Jesus.
And so if you're able to, would you stand out of reverence for God's word? As we hear the word today, I'm going to ask you, at the end, to, to thank God for the word that he's given to us today. There'll be instructions on the screen. But this is what God's word says to us this morning. Starting in verse 17. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy. And strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day, the mountains, they're going to drip with sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness. For the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. This is God's word to us today. You may be seated. And so, there are three different things. If we're talking about from this text, three different things um, that God aims to redeem in, in, in such a way. He, he wants to make us spiritually whole. He aims to make us spiritually whole. Where do you see that in this passage? Start first with verse 17. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy. Jerusalem shall be holy. What's he saying about that? There are a couple of things that we can pay attention to. First off is where God is. Where God is being at, at, at present at this time, or rather in the, in the future, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain in Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. Over and again in the Old Testament, Old Testament uses Old Testament phrases. And sometimes we need to understand in an Old Testament, in a New Testament way. When we first read this, it just sounds like it's solely and only for Israel, for Old Testament people. When we read this in light of the New Testament, however, it seems to broaden the audience in a significant way. Old Testament parameters for being a member of God's covenant people meant that you obeyed the law. In order to be a member of God's covenant, God's, God's, um, God's people, you had to be circumcised. You had to follow the law of Moses. 
And if you were a Gentile convert to that, that, that there were still some ways in which you couldn't practice the entirety of the Jewish faith. What ends up happening in the New Testament, however, is when Jesus comes, he broadens salvation out for everyone and everything. So it's now not just about land in Jerusalem, in Zion, where in the Old Testament, God dwelled, where God was with his people. In the New Testament, we see the entirety of the earth transformed and changed and all of the nations of the earth bow before their God, who is Jesus. So God promises to be present with his people, but that's not all. He promises to make them holy too. God makes them holy. We'll get to the the, the bit about strangers not passing through the land in, in just a moment. But God promises to make them holy. We don't know exactly what the grievous sins were, for, for Judah at this time, we know that they were bad enough for God to send a prophet, Joel, to address the issue that was going on in their own day and warning them about the day of the Lord. And so he doesn't leave them alone in their mess, though he is incredibly merciful. He's incredibly gracious. It is a grace from God to let them know that trouble is coming. Judgment is coming. And he tells them in a couple of different ways, a couple of different times that judgment is coming. This day of the Lord, this double day of the Lord. But even in warning them and even in discipline, God is still gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love. And so then we're met with a conundrum. God promises to make them holy But through the Old Testament, the way to be holy was to adhere, to to, to be bound to and to obey the Mosaic law. And if you break it, you can be tossed out of the land. There's severe, heavy consequences for it. But in light of the New Testament, what happens? Jesus comes. He doesn't just promise forgiveness. He doesn't just promise forgiveness in the ultimate price of, of sin, which is being separated from God. He's not just the answer for that. He also promises to make people holy too. The very thing that Joel is saying that God will make happen in his covenant people. See, in 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses the Corinthian church, the most jacked up church in the New Testament. Dudes sleeping with their mothers-in-law. Rich people exploiting poor people. Spiritual gifts. I'm more spiritual than you because I can do all these other things. Not loving one another. The most jacked up church in the New Testament. In the very beginning, Paul says what? You are holy. Peter in 1 Peter, his universal letter, he tells churches to be holy as God is holy. The Nicene Creed confesses we are one holy apostolic 
church. Hebrews teaches that Jesus came to make us holy. But when we say God came to make us holy, God aims to make us holy, what do we mean? Helpful definition. I stole this from someone. I wish I remembered who. When we say God came to make us holy or living out holiness, holiness is wholeness. Holiness is wholeness. God came to make a people that were going to be singularly for him. Singularly about him. Totally about and driven by the things that drive him. Our heart beats for the things that make his heart beat. Is there any one of us here that feels comfortable in saying, I am holy as God is holy? I, I can wait. No one. <laughs> so on one hand, we have Jesus' work on the cross for us, separating a people for himself, in whom he aims to delight in forever. Effectively, that, that is what it means positionally, that we are to be holy. And yet at the same time in the New Testament, sanctification or the process of becoming more like Jesus is to say that we are more and more holy. We live out holiness more and more. Frankly, some of us have our homes and our families in our heart more than God's holiness. We care more about and are shaped by more what the news says or a sports team says or music says or a job says more than about the things that make God's heart beat. Does your demeanor match the descriptor that God gave to you? That you are to be holy. Does your speech match the station that Jesus has given to you? That you are holy and for me only and solely. Does your posture match your position when trials come? Are you able to cling? Do you want to cling to the rock of ages? Or do you go to other things for satisfaction and relief? When anxiety and problems and pain come. Tim, why does this matter? He's not teaching us now to be holy. Uh, 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 I don't know about that. Because this is, this is where we will be. He says that we are going to be solely and only for us. Right now, our fickle hearts get pulled all sorts of different ways. And there are seams in our heart that can be tore off that won't be dedicated towards him all the time. And he is envisioning and picturing, illustrating for us that one day your entire being is going to be only for him. That's what's going to happen. I have a hard word for you, some of you. 
That is where we will be. That is what salvation is. Rescue is. Jesus aims to redeem us. Not just from the consequence of sin, which is hell, but also he aims to make a people holy and solely for him. And if this is our eternal destination where we will be finally, um, but our character and life, our speech, it doesn't reflect that, there might be a problem. There might be a problem. Don't hear this as... um, as legalism and heavy-handedness. Some of us struggle in seeking how to please the Lord. We struggle with that in a couple of ways. We hear God's expectations for us, and so we white-knuckle our fists and say, I will obey. Whatever he says, I'm going to do. And when that expires when all self-discipline expires, then we go to won't power. I won't do this because I know there are catastrophic consequences to what I do. And neither of those produce holy living in us. We need someone on the outside that's stronger than us to supercharge us and frankly change our desires. We don't need willpower. We don't need won't power. We need the Spirit's power alive in us, directing us Godward because that's what holiness is. It's not a matter of doing and duty. It is a matter of desire and what you love. Brother and sister, you struggle with the same sin and it's because you you may care more about the parameters that you have in your life and all the strategies that you have in your life to fight against smoking or whatever, right? You want to feel ashamed about that maybe. We could talk about that some other time. Maybe more serious things like pornography. Maybe even more serious things like husbands not loving your wives or not living with your wives in an understanding manner or mothers struggling with trying to figure out how to disciple their kids and you think through strategy after strategy after strategy and it ends up being fruitless because we depend upon those things more than asking the spirit to change our desires. And so we really do what we love. We gravitate towards those that we love. Christian, you will be here one day because the one that loves you has put in your heart a desire to know him and love him. And that's why you're changed gradually over time. There's a warning implicit in here though. If this doesn't excite you about knowing a holy God and being able to stand before him and not afraid of judgment and being cast out, but being received totally and holy. And there is no desire in your heart today to please him and know him and trust him. 
There are a couple of possibilities that are for us. One is that you have a immature understanding of what salvation and rescue are. You misunderstand that salvation isn't just about an out-of-body experience, but it's being united with the one that, that created you. Or two, it's not immature, an immature understanding, but rather it is that you have not been rescued. And there may be something in you stirring now saying, I know now that I'm created to know God and be loved by him. And I don't know what else to do but trust him. I think Joel would point us to the day of the Lord stirs us. As Ian McDevitt eloquently said last week, to repent and trust God aims to make you and me spiritually whole. He wants to. He wants to make you holy. He wants to make you whole. He also says we get to be physically healed. Again, we're a part of creation. God promises to make all things new in creation. We get to experience this in a significant way. The mountains are going to drip with sweet wine. Remember how in the beginning of Joel, um, locusts and fire started to torch the land and destroy the land. And when you're a farmer and you're living off the land and you don't know how you're going to provide for your family, that's a significant issue. God's saying he reverses the curse now. He's making things the way that they should have been in the beginning. What else do we see? We see dry, cracked stream beds in Judah begin to overflow because there is a fountain coming from the house of the Lord. What is this a picture of? Is this Joel prophesying that indoor plumbing is coming in just a few short years? I don't know. I'm willing to wager it's not. Don't go there. Facebook posts later on, things my pastor says. No, it is a picture later on in Revelation. There's this grand vision of a stream flowing from God's own throne. And what is it to point to? This is where life comes very life of very life. It flows and streams from God. And so the broken things and broken people of the world are able to receive healing and restoration. Some of you that are in here right now struggle with OLD syndrome. Show of hands? Yeah? Yeah. Your back don't work the way that it used to. Mm-hmm. How many of you, it's difficult to sit in even church because you're back. It, it's a struggle getting up. It's a struggle going to work. It's a struggle going to work for years upon years upon years and your body doesn't work and it just breaks over time. You and I, we don't. As good as doctors are, we don't get full healing and restoration now. 
You know what this does, though, is that it births in us anticipation and hope for one day. You're not going to struggle with OLD syndrome anymore. Whether this is true or not, I don't know. One of my best friends, Michael Spallione, he has made plans now because there's just not enough time in existence, like in, in, in our lifetime, to do all the things that we want to do. And he hurt his body too. But in the new heavens and the new earth, he plans a camping trip to, to the Grand Canyon, friends. He promises healing and life And so this should birth in you patience and anticipation and hope. If you're struggling today, your body doesn't work. Jesus promises if you are in me, it's coming. I promise to make you healed and whole. That's what the good physician does. Finally, we get to see relational security. Redemption means relational security. This is the rest of the passage. 19 through 21 is a picture, even in violent terms, of God bringing peace. The biblical word is shalom. There are some folks that are here now or out there now Um, that continue to live opposed to God's way. Jesus' way of life, the narrow way. Jesus would teach, though, that it is the narrow way that invites peace to rule in us. And I don't mean like this, um, this, this simple, frilly kind of emotional experience I'm talking about the kind of stuff that keeps you rock solid when you're in the hospital with your baby girl and you don't know if she's going to live or die. The picture that he has here is of creation and humanity and God, although all three of them are very distinct and separate from one another. He says that they are in sync with one another. Though creation and us and God were distinct from one another, we end up living in sync with one another. It's an end of all conflict, end of all strife. And this section is largely positive, except for the the, the bit about Egypt and the bit about Edom, it's heavy. We see that in the Old Testament, but isn't it amazing when you read this in light of the New Testament, what happens? God's people, God's people are sons of Abraham that join him by faith. That's Galatians 3. And so now even those that did violence even those that did shed innocent blood, even places and people like Egypt and like Edom can be redeemed and rescued too. And so the hope and the invitation isn't just to cast enemies out. 
It's to invite enemies in and see them also as fully restored sons of God. Fully redeemed, fully forgiven when they trust in Jesus. This is the great hope. This is the future. It's not today. And so I don't, I don't want to live with rose-colored glasses. I don't think Joel wants us to either. It's an encouragement and a challenge for us not to build utopia and safety in life here. But what it does do, as people who have been redeemed by Christ and will one day be redeemed by Christ, who have experienced forgiveness now, we also get a taste and a touch of these things that he promises. We don't get the full experience yet of what it means to be spiritually whole. But we do know what it's like to be in communion with our God when we meet with him in prayer and we hear from him from the word. We don't get full healing now, but we do feel his power when he pushes us go a little bit further. I'm with you now. Be patient, I'm coming. Be patient, run the race. Be patient, have hope. It's not over yet. I'm still in control. I'm the one that governs all of human history. And as a pocket of new creation here now on earth, we show people what relationships are really supposed to look like. When conflict comes, we deal with it appropriately. When people sin against us, we deal with it appropriately. When there are needs that show up, we are overwhelmingly lavish. When there are differences in ideology, whether that's political or educational or otherwise, that's not a thing that divides us. Instead, Jesus is what unites us as a pocket of new creation. And as that, we call out to the rest of the world, like Joel, that the day of the Lord is coming. And it doesn't have to be disaster and ruin for them, but it can be a day of redemption and deliverance for them instead. Have you been redeemed? Have you trusted Christ? I want to talk to that. I, I, I don't do this every Sunday. But there may be a person here that's never trusted Jesus before. And the idea of the end is absolutely terrifying to you. And friend, I don't want it to be for you. And it doesn't have to be. But I don't want you to be merely motivated by fear. I want you to be motivated by someone that gave his life for you so that you can know him and be known by him and forgiven by him and welcomed into his family. We're gonna pray in just a moment and we'll sing a song. Hey, if you have prayer needs, come on up. Pray up here at the front. That's totally cool. You could pray at your seat. 
Um, but if you've never trusted Jesus before and you want to know what that looks like, what that means, I'm going to be up front and I want to pray with you. And I want to help you do that. Let's bow our heads together. Father, you are the author of history from beginning to end. And so you know all the nooks and crannies and you see the wide tapestry of history um, for, for what it is. You know where all things end up and here we are on this day in January, 10 degrees outside. And while it's cold out there, the warmth of your word may it encourage and enliven us. Spirit of God, I pray that you would awaken us. Quicken us to see your holiness. Jesus, I pray that we would be holy like you are holy, solely and devoted to thee. Father, there are brothers and sisters here that have aches and pains that go far beyond just sleeping wrong. And you were kind and compassionate and promising brand new life for them. And so I pray as they have trusted you, I pray that you would push in them and cultivate in them more and more courage and hope and anticipation that there are good gifts coming for them. Father, may they hold on. May you hold on to them. Father, as a pocket of new creation, help us live lives relationally in such a way that it's obvious, it's painfully obvious to the rest of the world that we are different and that there's a God over HBC. Father, thank you for our time again. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name.